Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everyone. Glad to be with you once again. It's Adam Andrews at the head of the Center for Lit crew with another edition of Bibliophiles. Joined, as always, by my lovely wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hey. Good to see you guys. You guys ready to do it again? Sure. All right. Let's go. Um, We have another fun topic on tap for today of a literary significance of even a philosophical significance and of a significance that relates to our work as teachers. So those of you out in the listening audience who are teachers once in a while or maybe every day or continuously might be particularly interested by today's topic. It's the purpose of art as it relates to teaching. We want to ask the question today in the context of our Center for Lit discussion, how to present art to our students And what is the reason that artists go to create it? I think this question has particular relevance uh, to those of us who are teaching, especially if we go to teach with a particular set of ideals in mind. If we're we're self-conscious about the kind of student that we're trying to create or the kind of um, sentiments that we're trying to build into our students, if we go to teach for an ideological reason or some sort of worldview-oriented purpose before our minds a lot of times is how do we use this information to inculcate those kinds of values and those kinds of ideas? And, and I want to talk with you guys today about what role the art itself plays in that process. Maybe a a broad way to ask this question is what does it mean to teach anyway? And what is the role of art and specifically literature in that process? Um, one of the terms that I have come across recently that you and I and you Center for Lit Denizens and I have been batting around in the last few weeks is the idea of mimetic teaching. And I thought we'd start by just talking about that term and, uh, and see if it's relevant to this question. So, Missy, could I impose upon you to um, read a passage from Aristotle to get us started on the idea of mimetic teaching? Sure. Uh, let's see. Any this passage. Is, just this pick is one. actually this is a um, Sir Philip Sidney talking about Aristotle. It's not Aristotle himself. That's okay. That's uh, a minor distinction. Okay. He says poesy therefore <laughs> details details. Poesy therefore is an art of imitation. For so Aristotle termeth it in his word mimesis. That is to say, a representing, counterfeiting, or figuring forth. To speak metaphorically, a speaking picture. With this end, to teach and delight. So in your own words then, Missy. Well, my understanding of this kind of mimesis is a figuring forth of nature. That is to, um, to project, the artist reproduces in some artistic way um, what he sees around him. Okay. And the degree to which he uh, faithfully reflects reality is the degree to which his art is either good or poor. So mimesis, the word from which we get mime to imitate, mm-hmm. 
is the thing that the artist does, and he is imitating nature and holding forth an imitation of nature for the benefit of his readers. Yeah, and I don't just mean nature like, uh, you know, um, the rocks flowers and, trees and, and rocks flowers. and trees. I mean um, reality as it is. Well, as far as I can tell, that's what Eric Auerbach was on about in his book of the title, Mimesis, which came out in like the 1950s. Um, and he was talking about literature representing reality and because of that, you have to understand context or the or the nature of the reality that the author was representing. And it's a famous work of criticism that a lot of people go back to today. So from those two sources, we get the idea then that the artist's role is to live in the world in which he lives and see what's real, see how the, the world in which he lives reflects reality and then reflect that reality back in his art. Yeah, Sidney himself says that um, that really the job of the poet or the artist is to be a moderator between man and nature, or even better yet, um, a historian or a moral philosopher. So you can tell by that that not all poetic voices or artistic voices are equal in their value and their merit, and you can also see why there's so much disagreement about which artist is best and which piece is most worthy of our students' attention. And why would that be? Well, because really even the task of selecting worthy art is the task of the moderator, the historian, and the moral philosopher, mm. no? Mm. But the idea basically that artists, some artists can have a bad eye, for Yeah, and, and to some extent the teacher is participating um, because he's choosing the art. There's an art to choosing which pieces to include when you study with your students. Mm. Okay, so so this idea then, the idea of, of mimesis applies to the artist, but I used a phrase a minute ago called, the, I said mimetic teaching as an idea that we wanted to talk about today, and the idea that art is particularly relevant to our job as teachers when we're presenting art to our students, uh, what's the best way to be doing it? Is are, is are any of you guys familiar with that phrase mimetic teaching, or did I just hear that in the airwaves and decided to parrot it on this episode? I mean, I think we've no, talked about it, haven't no, we? No, we've talked about it, and I... I think what I've understood um, people to mean when they talk about mimetic teaching is um, teaching in such a way as the kids, teaching things that the kids should strive to emulate and teaching in such a way as you yourself are worthy of emulation, which is, I think, right. a, a different thing from what Aristotle is on about here. And I think it's kind of, um, it might be a miss. Not that it's not a good thing to, to um, you know, to, to try to, uphold particular values and virtues. Of course, we all ought to do that, whether we're teachers or, or not, but it kind of misses the point um, when we're talking well, about mimetic art. Before we judgment of it, though, maybe we should talk a little bit more about the thing itself. Yeah, to g give me a summary of it. I, I mean, I've heard the term <clears throat> as many times as anybody else, but I, I am always sort of uh, adrift and fairly sure that my understanding of the term is a little on the cartoonish side. Emily, well, does the, does the t term come up in the books that you've read on that subject? No, but I do have a little bit of history with the idea of mimesis just because of the education I got in which, the, I mean, Ian and Megan as well got to at Hillsdale. Um, and there we were acquainted with the continental philosophers who were on about the idea of mimesis um, and the idea that to the extent that someone desires something or to be something or to, to want something or for the sake of an example, let's say that a man is in love with a woman, then it's because he has seen someone else um, also desire 
that woman or that kind of woman. And so because he is envious of the man beside him, he too, his desire for the woman is mediated through that person because he wants to be like that person. Mm. And I think mimetic teaching kind of takes this on because the idea is that the teacher will embody the ideal or whatever it is he's trying to put forward. And so the student will envy, I mean, this is not the language that mimetic teachers would use, I'm sure, but this is what the continental philosophers would say. The student would envy the teacher. And so his desire would be mediated through the teacher Ah. and wanting to be like him. So the teacher takes a, takes a desire in the heart of a student that's akin to envy and uses that to direct the student's desires in a particular way. So sets himself up as it were, as a, as a model of at least emulation, if not envy. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if I haven't seen any classical educators talk about the extent that the continental philosophers are related to this idea. I never hear them brought up. So I don't know if that's an accident or if it's self-conscious. I have no idea. The concept that I've heard in, in classical education circles, um, held up as mimetic teaching is simply the idea that in order to teach, you have to attach pieces of knowledge to concrete things. First of all, you have to incarnate the idea into some physical and manipulable so the students can understand it. And that it's helpful if those ideas are topics with which they're already familiar. So to teach mimetically is to take an idea and pull it down out of the clouds and make it concrete and then ask the students to manipulate it or imitate it in some way so Mm. that they own it themselves. I see. When Sydney which talks, is a little different than the teacher himself becoming that thing, which I think is also the case sometimes. But right. yeah, I think these ideas thing. all get very conflated. When Sydney mm-hmm. was talking about mimesis, he was talking um, more like what you're talking about, Emily. Um, he talks about, let's see, he says, For suppose it be granted that which I suppose with great reason may be denied, that the philosopher in respect of his methodical proceeding does teach more perfectly than the poet. Yet do I think that no man is so uh, philosophical as to compare the philosopher in moving with the poet, and that moving is of a higher degree than teaching. It may by this appear that it is well nigh the cause and effect of teaching, for who will be taught if he be not moved with desire to be taught? And what so much good doth that teaching bring forth, I still speak of moral doctrine, as that it moveth one to do that which it doth teach. Uh. For as Aristotle says... It is not gnosis, but praxis must be the fruit. And how praxis cannot be without being moved to practice, it is no hard matter to consider. So you're right, Missy. Those ideas that we've been talking, uh, batting around are kind of commingled in that passage from Sydney. Yeah, it, it comes straight from Aristotle. He summarizes this way, For out of natural conceit the philosophers drew it, but to be moved to do that which we know, or to be moved with desire to know, Hoc opus hic laborest. This the work, this the labor, from the Aeneid. To be moved from that which we know to that which we do. Mm-hmm. The suggestion that the path from knowing to doing involves some sort of a desire to imitate. Yeah. A desire to emulate. And, you know, this is the thing. You know, we can talk about this in a variety of ways. On the one hand, if what we're trying to, to move our kids or our students to emulate is a particular form of art, obviously by holding up um, a variety of that form and saying, emulate this good writing, for example, right. emulate this form of good writing. Right. 
um, that that's pretty right, like Sydney does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a pretty tried and true form, <laughs> right? Imitation, right? Um, if what we're talking about is using literature didactically, I think that um, we run afield a little bit. Well, well, because all of a sudden now we need to get back to the original question, which is, what's the purpose of art? Because it's art that we're supposed to be teaching the kids to appreciate and to interact with. Right. Right. It's art we're teaching them how to handle, right? How to, in, how to receive. You mean when we teach literature particularly? Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, unless it's a writing class, then we're, we're teaching them to create art, right? But if it's a literature class, we're teaching them to receive, receive and it. respond to art. And so we have to ask, what's the purpose of art? And um, here at Center for Lit, we talk about the purpose of art as being to communicate. All art is created to communicate. It's a form of communication of ideas. So, so it's mimetic in the first sense yes. that we talked about at the very beginning. Exactly. The artist so, mirroring the reality that he observes and yes, conceives of. Exactly. I mean, an artist might write to pose a question or explore a problem, or they might do so to suggest a solution. Sometimes they're aimed social criticism and other times, you know, they want to suggest thoughts about the nature of man or the power of God or society or the nature of reality. But regardless of their take on the big ideas, the ideas uh, and the questions are universals. Everybody asks them, doesn't matter uh, when they're writing or what their circumstances are. So it seems if, like a trick thing, though, because in literature, it just does happen to us, right? We see a character acting in a way that we wish that we could be like. Like, we're all listening to Great Expectations right now, and we see Joe, and gee, I really wish that I could be Joe. That is something that happens inside of us. Yes. And so you can kind of, so I see that happening on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's a fine line between seeing the person you wish you could be and recognizing that you are not them, yeah. that you are more like the flawed characters in the story, like Pip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark Twain is, is um, giving advice to young writers and uh, it's either in his, in his advice to young writers or in his blasting of James Fenimore Cooper's literary offenses. He says, bad writers write a story and they don't teach you to hate the bad characters and admire the good ones. And the assumption from Twain is that that's one of the purposes of art is to teach you to hate the bad guys and like the good guys. But so see, there is, there's the kind purpose. of a moral, I mean, in Twain's, in Twain's hands, there is sort of a moral purpose to at least literature, if not art generally. Certainly that's true. But the question is, um, is that also the purpose of the teacher? That's the purpose of the artist, right? Every artist is writing in order to further a conversation about an idea that he thinks is either laudable or despicable. And he creates characters and places them in circumstances in order to let that play out. Right. And if he's any good at it, he makes you love the lovable and despise the despicable. But here we, we come into a little bit of a gray area because not every author who writes agrees with you, the reader, about what is good and what is despicable. Granted. There are a variety of opinions, and there we get into some intellectual philosophy, right? So we have to go back to what is art? What is art? Well, it's communication, Well, and define right? the lovely, though. You have to define the lovely because, I mean, as we, we've had this conversation a million times, right? Not the best authors, for the most part, aren't writing virtuous protagonists. That's kind of the point. Yes, which so I suppose the question that we're asking then, if I would, if I could rephrase it a little bit, isn't what is art, and it isn't necessarily what is mimetic teaching. 
maybe it's um, what role does art play in the process of education? Mm-hmm. I think so. And and what is literature? What is the study of literature in particular um, in in education? And it's not. I I think there are two different ways that people approach that teachers approach teaching literature, um, in particular at the secondary level. Um, and I suppose we can talk about it at the primary level too. And maybe it's even more appropriate at the primary one. One form is more appropriate at the primary level than at the secondary level. But I think that teachers approach literature, and on the one hand, they say, okay, my job here is to choose books where there are um, protagonists with moral integrity by the end of the story. Maybe they don't start out with moral integrity, but they learn something um, virtuous by the end, or they achieve something virtuous, or at least if they fail, they see it and can be held up in a didactic sort of a way to make our students love virtue. That's one way to do it. Another way to approach the study of literature, and I think it's particularly appropriate at the secondary level, is to um, see it as an opportunity to understand the author's uh, input into the larger conversation about the ideas that he brings up in his story. It's a more thematic treatment, um, and it's not to say that it won't encounter ideas of virtue and beauty and goodness and truth and all of those things. Joe Gargery is still a good guy, even if Dickens is aiming at larger game. Yes, but okay, that only works if we're talking about um, Joe Gargery in that sense. What if we're talking about um, the character Henry Fleming um, in Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we've got an entirely different kind of a story. And it's more of a scientific project that he's giving us here, a little glimpse into a world of scientific materialism. And we're not really being asked to, um, we're not being asked to emulate Henry. Right. We're being asked to acknowledge with Henry that there's no such thing as courage because man's just a bundle of cells. And there's no such thing as moral virtue, really, except that that society creates because there's nothing that stands outside of man to determine any kind of greater goodness. And so we got to make it up. There's just peer pressure, a social norm. You see, that's what I'm trying to say. I think that at the secondary level, when we get into works like that, it's much more useful to approach the teaching project as an opportunity to get into the text and understand what it is that the author's trying to communicate and trace kind of an intellectual history as we study these works of literature. Not to say, okay, well, I'm going to put this year Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage on my list because I want the kids to learn what it is to be courageous. That's a myth. That's a myth. Or to say, <laughs> I'm not going to put Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage on the list because... I am not interested in scientific materialism. I'm a Christian and I, I disagree. But instead, to make it an opportunity to understand Stephen Crane and what he's doing there in the Red Badge of Courage and to become better acquainted um, by being better acquainted with his, with his particular contribution to the conversation, come to understand our own ideas uh, in contrast and be more capable ourselves of communicating with men that disagree with us about those ideas. Emily, go. Right. Well, I want to be careful that we don't say that it's entirely a process that is uh, um, something that's distant because I could see someone taking what you're saying and think of it in a purely scientific form. Well, that's his idea and this is my idea over here and it's separate and we're going to compare them and they're not going to intermingle and we're going to see how my idea is better. 
because that's not entirely true. That's the opposite end of the spectrum. And what's really true is you also have to read in an open way because there are some things about the world which Stephen Crane was right about. Oh, absolutely. You know, so you do have to open yourself up to having your idea changed. So it does affect the reader, right? It's not that it's it's something that's outside of the reader. Like it is supposed to come in and affect you. I and a good that. reader will be affected by it. Right. Yeah, I think that yeah. you could even understand it to be not just a, a study of the answers to the questions he poses, but a study of the questions themselves. Which are relevant to every reader. Exactly, yeah. exactly. We better understand great, the questions. Which is actually a great ball it. toss over my direction because um, the question I asked a second ago, I don't feel like we really addressed, which is to say, what is an education? Um, we can talk about the purpose of art and we can talk about how to read well and all those things are great, but the question we opened up the day with was mimetic teaching. And I think we have to understand what we're aiming for, what we mean when we say an educated person before we can really tackle that question. And before any of the comments we've made about the role of art in an education are going to make any sense. So you have opened the question, you answer it. Well, I guess what I see is a couple of different pursuits happening um, in, in different pockets of the classical education world, right? We've got those who are relatively convinced that the goal of an education is to cultivate a virtuous person so that the students would um, think and act uh, more rightly and more virtuously in the biblical sense by the time they are done with high school than they did when they were little kids. Yeah. And that the, because of that, the effect, the the purpose of study in all of these different areas is to present to them um, things that are worthy of their imitation and to fill their minds up with good examples to emulate, with good ideas to think, with the right and proper way to think them, and so that they will become what they behold and and learn to love beautiful things and learn to love virtuous things and become good, virtuous people. So an educated person is a virtuous person. I hear you saying, and I agree with you, that at the root of this whole concept is the idea or the thesis that ideas have consequences and that artists are working out those ideas, their own ideas in their various mediums, right? Usually people take this purpose of art towards a discussion of art as either a reflection of reality or a conscious desire to teach particular values. And I think this bifurcates art's um, larger contribution and reduces the communication of ideas and the study of these ideas to a kind of argument in which readers sure. and more significantly teachers, right, have to take sides, silencing all the detractors by eliminating not poorly crafted works from the canon, but instead any work that strays from voicing their personal ideas about what virtue happens to be. Okay, right? so wrap that back up and, and reapply it to the question that I asked, which is what do you think of that description I just gave of education? Well, I think that I think that that might do violence to our study. Um, it might describing education that way might? Yeah, I think it because what are we going to be tempted to do? I mean, like I just said, we're going we're going to be tempted to silence anybody that disagrees with our understanding of what virtue is and eliminate a lot of books that could, frankly, serve our purposes our purposes in uh, teaching our children to know virtue, to know beauty, to love goodness, and all of those sorts of things, because the works uh, in question don't perhaps forward their own understanding of what virtue is. 
Yeah, it's kind of a paradox, right? By excluding the authors that you don't think are virtuous, you close yourself off from potential chances to become more virtuous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good no, art reflects reality faithfully, but not every work reflects reality to the same degree. I mean, some of them reflect the way things seem to be, and others attempt to suggest why those things are the way that they seem to be. And to, de- to the degree that the artist actually is telling the truth about the reality he perceives and its roots and does so beautifully, he's created some good art. But good art doesn't necessarily equal the capital T truth. Well, another thing is that good art doesn't necessarily accomplish the the moral, uh, the purpose of praxis that no. Spencer gets mm-hmm. from Aristotle. No. I mean, I think there's a real problem there when we use, as teachers, when we use art as a way to enforce behavior or mm-hmm. to or to inculcate behavior or to use it as a species of behavior modification on our students. Um, I don't think that's probably what most novelists, for example, in the Western tradition had in mind when they went to put quill pen to parchment. Yeah, that's why I, I um, differentiated between the, the primary years and the secondary schooling, because mm-hmm. I think I a lot that. of primary artists People writing for young, young children are writing for didactic purposes, and we should read them um, in that way. But when we're talking about um, the classics of Western civilization, uh, oftentimes that's that's really not what they're after. No, I agree. And I, I think I also think that the um, that the impulse to want to inculcate behavior. Um, uh, how do I want to put this? Uh, the, it's not the best way to get there to emulate, to, to observe models of good behavior, to emulate. I think that be, betrays, if I could overstate it, maybe, or just go, to, go all the way to the end of the branch I'm standing on, that betrays a misunderstanding <laughs> of human nature. Yeah, like if you, I, I don't think, if you can educate them, then, then they'll be good. I don't actually think that's how people become good. I, I call to witness Ben Franklin's autobiography. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It hasn't ever worked. It's not a And anybody problem. that looks at the history of human nature knows for a fact that knowing the good and beholding the good doesn't in fact make you good. It might in, in a perfect world, maybe we wish it were so that it did, but I don't think it does. And I think what you mean to say education can't actually make you good. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder about that. I'm a little confused because we're going back and forth so so much between what is art and what is a good teacher. And I know that they're connected, but I'm a little bit lost in the weeds. Can you, what you just said just there, are you talking about the purpose of an artist in creating a piece of art or the role of a teacher in talking about an artist's work? That's a great question. And that's kind of what we were talking about there at the beginning when yeah. I said it's important to define our terms a little bit. And I do think we're talking about all of those things, but right this minute, your comment there, Dad. What was that about? Was well, that about I actually the think on that on that point, the role of the artist and the role of the teacher um, line up pretty closely. I think that they they ought to be involved in the very same thing, and and I, this is what I mean by that. What the artist is doing, the novelist, from Ernest Hemingway to Charles Dickens to right. the playwrights of Shakespeare and the and the Homer and the great epic poets, what they're trying to do is say, this is what human nature is actually like. This is the the flesh that man is heir to. Mm-hmm. These are the feet of clay. This is the quintessence of dust. And um, 
they don't necessarily, the great artists, offer a solution to the problem. Right. But they all say, in various voices, they all say the same thing. He's got a problem. Mm. And the teacher is not trying to fix that problem, I don't think. I think the good teacher is trying to say, with the artist, the very same thing. Notice Look, kid, you've got a problem. Yeah, and yeah. that's what Philip Sidney was saying. Yeah. I, I think that that is the proper understanding and use of the term right. It's It is, this the work, this the labor, this man. Yes. Yes. Yes, ecce homo, as, yes, as exactly. the ancients would have it. And and so the, the teacher is not trying to... To, to give the student a model so that he can emulate his way out of his problem. He's trying to give the student a, a picture, a clear understanding of what kind of creature he is and just the shape of his own lump of clay. And well, and go ahead, Emily. Sorry. No, no, please. I'm not finishing that. That's it. That's that's my thought. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> well, I was just going to reference my own uh, experience, which obviously has so much authority. But, um, <laughs> I was just thinking that <laughs> when I see someone who is virtuous or is doing good, my response most of the time isn't to say, gee, I wish I could be more like that person. I mean, I'm going to admit this on air and so everyone knows how horrible I am, but my response would be, wow, I hate that person. <laughs> I wish that they weren't so awesome because now I feel terrible about myself. Mm. Um, but it's kind of like a, a law and gospel switcheroo, right? When someone shows me how terrible I am and extends grace to me out of that grows virtue, right? That has to come first, the recognition of the spot you're in and your inability to escape it has to come first. Um, at least that's just what my experience has taught me. I think I don't that, have much of it. I think that reading of, of um, the moral situation of man is spot on. And I think that reading of the great works of literature um, holds up mm. to a lot of close analysis. I mean, I think I can just calling back in my mind off the top of my head, I can think of Achilles uh, when Priam has him by the knees, seeing in that moment what he's done to Hector mm -hmm. and seeing the or fact... at least what he's done to Priam. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> what he's done to Priam in doing what he did to yeah. Hector and um, seeing the, the, the way that he uh, has destroyed the balance of the world, to put it in the, you know, the ancient terms, is, is analogous to what you're talking about. Emily, seeing his own lack rather than uh, giving him a model to emulate is the, is the moral heft of yeah, that scene. What happens then is you identify with the shortfall, right? And you say with him, oh, what was me, right? What will I do? And I think this is, um, as a Christian educator, what I'm after. I'm after for the kids to come alongside me and together for us to survey the nature of man and better come to yeah. know ourselves as a result. Yeah. It's not Joe Gargery that we, that we identify with in great expectations. It's Pip first, Pip second and Pip last. Yeah. And Gargery is a, is an, is a contrast to us. And in this regard, we, we don't have to limit our reading then to only Christian novels because if an artist, even a non-Christian artist, is accurately describing man and depicting his nature, it still serves the purpose. Right. He may not have the proper answers, but if he's 
actually reflecting man as he is, he does us a great service. And sometimes um, what, what we want to call a bad book, I don't know if we should call it a bad book, maybe we should call it an erroneous book or fallacious book, can teach us more about the world and about ourselves and about our neighbors um, than one that we would term a good one mm-hmm. in that regard. Well, I was just thinking along those same lines that this is a really encouraging statement, actually. If it's true that the kids, the students, are going to get the most out of identifying with the weaknesses in a character. And if we take that one step further to the idea of mimetic teaching, it's encouraging to the teachers among us, to those um, those of us who are trying to lead the students, that it's the flaws and the frailties in the characters and maybe in us, too, that are going to connect with the students and um, and the children. I mean, for those of those of you who are homeschool moms out there, that's really good news for you. Yeah. Because patterning virtue, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me. It's a millstone, man. Yeah, yeah. If that's what's required to be a good teacher, then all of us are, are going to fail all day long every day. Yeah, I really agree. And if we can take it a step further, even um, let's think again about art as liter- uh, about literature as reflecting or communicating an author's ideas. And we can then look at the flawed authors, their flawed worldviews, right? And gain some compassion, some empathy, some understanding. I mean, those um, erroneous books, um, they're good for us in our teaching and good for our students, not because we want our kids to emulate the ideas in them, but instead because through them, we better understand the author's ideas and the authors themselves are not the only men to hold those ideas. Right. right? So we um, are better able to communicate with others who share those ideas. Emily, you had a comment. Oh no, I was just going to see Ian's the one who asked the question. I was going to see if he wanted to answer his own question. Which question is that? I feel like we've ranged fairly far afield. (laughs) Do you just want to throw your or in your opinion on the idea? You asked, you asked what, what we thought of mimetic teaching in relation to literature. Oh, is that what I asked? <laughs> I I was just I was just kicking the idea that that our definition of education is really what's on the table here out into the middle of the room. I mean, no doubt our listeners are very familiar with our perspective on the role of literature in education. Well, I think that um, the the direction this has gone in the last few minutes is really um, significant, and and thanks to you guys for bringing it up. But the the link between the role of mimesis in art and the role of mimesis in teaching, I think is pretty profound. And I just want to reiterate something that Megan suggested a minute ago that the, the, um, the job of the teacher, and we should consider this. I don't know if Megan's right. Maybe we talk this over, maybe mm-hmm. that you all go home and, and think this through, but the job of the teacher is very similar in the end to the job of the artist, which is mm-hmm. to, to mime human nature mm-hmm. and in, not to uh, not to try and change it, but to mime it, and to give the student, as the as the Massachusetts Puritans of the 17th century would have said, to give the student a better sight of sin, mm-hmm. right? Right. If because, that's what we mean by mimetic teaching, I'm totally on board. Right. Right. Um, I was re I was listening to some um, a recording of a class Ian and Emily that you guys taught recently on um, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And there was this really interesting analysis that you gave of a passage and a character in that play that I've almost, I don't even notice. It's Benvolio, 
who is the um, who is one of the friends of one of the minor characters in Romeo and Juliet. And the, he don't really only does a couple of things. He he encourages Romeo to be gentle and moderate and and level headed. And he comes and helps Mercutio in his wounds. He 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 tends to Mercutio's wounds when he's when he's been um, when he's been wounded in a duel in a fight. And then he disappears from the play and he goes off stage as it were. And the play comes to this conclusion where no one's really satisfied because it looks like the feud between the two families hasn't really been solved. They've just changed the subject from trying to kill each other to, to trying to outgrieve the other. And the feud, the feud continues. And Shakespeare seems to be suggesting that the one hope that these two families had for the resolution of their problem has left the scene Mm-hmm. And the the moderation and the mercy and the grace that is really the solution exists now outside the world of the play and must come to them from beyond the hills, as it were. And I wonder if this is not only the, the role of the artist, but also the role of the teacher to mime the the real human condition and to suggest to the te- to the student that, Hey, look, we're in this together, you and me. Mm-hmm. And both of us well, are dependent on help from off stage. Yeah. yeah. I think that's it, really, it occurs to me. I hope that that's true because in that case, there's no way to fail really. Right. <laughs> in other words, there's nothing you can do, but be the appropriate kind of teacher. If that's what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean I, I feel like I'm talking not just to to us as career teachers, but also to all the moms and dads who are who are engaged in in the homeschooling project. If your job is to stand up in front of the room and be what you are, with no pretension and with no gilding of the of the situation before your children, well, you're in luck. I mean, you, I don't think you had much of a choice about that anyhow. Right? So <laughs> they see you. I think there's a yeah. They see you better than you do. Pile of of. Uh, letting out a sigh of relief that we can all do together on Mm. that topic, if that's really the truth. Mm. On the other hand, um, or maybe I should say simultaneously, um, it's a tall order because it requires that we have the humility to acknowledge our own nature as flawed, which is a tough pill to swallow sometimes. You know, we, we don't get to be the virtuous ones up front saying, be like me and you'll be fine because I'm so virtuous, just do it like I do it. But we have to acknowledge that we too are flawed. We too fall short. Mm-hmm. And that's the model that we're offering the students. In that regard, um, the, the works of literature, the characters in literature, as you were, as you were talking about earlier, Pitt, for example, um, presents an opportunity for us to say, thus man. And simultaneously, the authors themselves present an opportunity to say, thus man, Mm -hmm. you know, um, maybe there's not a character in Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby that we would want our students to emulate, but we don't have to throw his work on the ash heap of history. We can say, thus man, Mm -hmm. looking at Fitzgerald and his disillusionment with the fragmentation after World War II and the loss of um, his own faith. And you see what I mean? Yeah. It's Um, not just Gatsby. It's not just Gatsby, but it's what Gatsby says about the man who created him. Right, right. What do you think, guys? Is that, uh, do we have more to say on that subject? I think we've trod out the main points. Well, I appreciate your comments, guys. Encouraging and thought-provoking, as always. 
Uh, it's a privilege to sit down with you guys regularly and talk about these great ideas. I'm always encouraged and uh, reminded of my own humanity and of what a blessing it is to be among like-minded human beings. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who are listening. We appreciate your continued interest in Bibliophiles. I hope that you will enjoy this episode. I hope that you will be able to find others on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give us a rating if you feel like it. We enjoy those and appreciate them. You can also visit us on the web at centerforlit.com and find out what else we're doing for readers and teachers and thinkers of all stripes. It's been great as usual, my friends. And until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.